morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is debut novelist Will Medeiros, whose novel Restoration Heights was published on January 22nd. It's a novel of New York City, so it's apt that I'm interviewing Will a block from Columbus Circle in the middle of that great island we call Manhattan. Will, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you. Happy to be here. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is that your novel is set in New York City, and I have a novel coming out next year that's also set in New York City, and I found it a fantastic place to write about for so many different reasons. But to you, what makes New York the, the perfect city to set a novel? That's an interesting question. Um, I think the thing about New York that's good f- from a writer's point of view is just the sheer amount of people that's here. It sort of puts people into contact with other types of people that maybe they wouldn't other, you know, otherwise run into. Mm-hmm. Um, the city is like it's still segregated in sort of some sort of traditional economic ways. There are definitely some neighborhoods that are wealthier than other neighborhoods or that are whiter than other neighborhoods or blacker than other neighborhoods. But so much of the city is still, even despite that, right on top of each other. And people from those different places, they sort of still end up, you know, end up on the subway car together. They end up, you know, uh, 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 at restaurants together. They end up on streets together. So. I think everybody's just kind of coming into contact with each other and at times into conflict with each other, but at times there's not conflict. And so I just think there's sort of a wealth of possibilities in those interactions. A lot of my novel is set in 1906, and yet I find myself doing the exact same thing that you're doing, taking people from you know, fairly radically different backgrounds and having them encounter each other and then just see what would happen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so exactly. In, in that way, I think the city has not really changed all that much in, you know, the past century. Yeah, probably not. Tell us a little bit about your own history. How did you come to New York? Um, and what's your relationship with the city been like? Um, I have been in, I've lived, the apartment I live in now is the only apartment that I've, I've lived in in New York. And I, I moved here in 2010. Mm-hmm. And so I've been in the same same spot in in Brooklyn, in um, sort of the sort of edge of uh, Clinton Hill and Bed Stuy, um, kind of depending on you know which neighborhood's trending at the moment is which <laughs> which uh, neighborhood the apartment will be labeled as. But um, so I've had the you know chance to just kind of be in one spot for that long for about eight years and sort of seeing you know, sort of a swirl of changes happening in the neighborhood and, and, uh, you know, yeah, so that, yeah. And what brought you to New York originally? Um, that's right. Um, I actually moved here with my wife. We just moved here. We just wanted to do it. We both went to grad school in Philadelphia and, uh, we were actually initially planning on moving in 2008 when she finished grad school and, um, sort of, you know, 2008 happened, you know, yeah, the, the bottom yeah, dropped out yeah. of the economy and it just didn't seem like a good time to do, to, to disrupt anything. Um, and, uh, 
So, you know, we kind of waited a two years, a couple of years till things settled down and then, and then came up here. But it is a city that draws people in, I think, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. I, my, I have a child who, who lives up in Washington Heights, and it was a similar thing. Um, you know, they and several of their friends said, after college, like, we're a year out, let's yeah. go live in New York. Yeah. You know, and... and yeah. Uh, well, you know, I was in, in, in my MFA program in Philadelphia, and I think at that time, like, going in there, I was still thinking in terms of sort of career paths, like, I don't know, maybe I'll try to get a teaching job somewhere in an art department or some, something along those lines. And we had uh, uh, one of the sort of visiting critics, uh, Robert Storr, who sort of a large figure in the New York art scene and, you know, a lot of different levels. And um, and I remember he just did a, a talk one time just in front of a handful of students just kind of talking about, you know, what to do with your MFA. And, and he was just an advocate for going somewhere, getting yourself situated in a way that was sustainable, whatever that meant. I think he got his start. He said, I think if I remember correctly, he was like taking tickets at a theater or something, just something that's going to just keep you afloat so that you're not desperate and then just try to just make it work. Right. You know? And so I think when he did that, I just remember just being like, wow, you know, maybe I should just do that. You know, maybe, maybe I should just go there. We should just go to New York. We had friends that, that lived here already and we were like, let's just go up there and just try to make it happen in New York because if we don't do that, we'll probably just end up regretting it. I mean, I think it's good advice for what, what he said is good advice for the creative life in general. Mm-hmm. You know, Let's talk about the novel a little bit. In Restoration Heights, you make the bold and fairly unusual choice to begin the novel in the second person. So I immediately flash back to another very well-known New York novel, um, Jane McKinnerney's Bright Lights, Big City, mm-hmm. which the whole novel famously is told in the second person. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose to begin the book that way? Um... It wasn't because of Bright Lights, Big City, um, although that definitely I think that comparison you know gets made I think for obvious reasons. You know, I, think I played around with it, and and I I, ha- I knew I wanted to sort of introduce Reddick on the subway because again that the subway and sort of commuting and these sort of on the streets these are where these kind of interactions happen and where people make the where these relationships are formed that he eventually uses to sort of navigate the mystery. And yeah, so yeah. I, 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 want, I knew I wanted to start him on the subway. And, um, and then I just kind of imagined, everyone does know, you know, I, I wanted it to be this sort of, uh, sort of, I guess, telescoping process where you start with this very sort of generalized sense of a person, you know, because I guess that's another thing about living in New York when you encounter a lot of people is that, you get really good at just sort of like immediately saying, oh, this is this sort of person or this is that sort of person and just kind of immediately sort of pegging them. And so, yeah, everybody knows that guy who's standing in the door on the subway with his headphones on, yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, or at least everyone in New York does, you know, everyone who, who rides the subway does. And so it's just like, oh, okay, hey, that that person that you just that you just don't even doesn't even register anymore and it may or may not even be the same person you see every day but there's some white guy with his headphones on standing in the door you know listening to music uh maybe this guy has you know some sort of specific you know individual story that we could then kind of delve into to sort of flesh out this sort of generalized take with something individual yeah i think one of the other things you accomplish is you make the reader you make us feel like we're New Yorkers, even if, even if, I mean, I'm reading this book in North Carolina. I'm sure people read this book all over the place. And, Mm -hmm. um, I've been to New York, I've ridden on the subway, but I think even if I hadn't, 
the way that book starts sort of draws me into to feeling like, okay, you know, for the next 250 pages, I'm a New Yorker. Yeah. You know? <laughs> good, <laughs> good. So tell us the basic setup of Restoration Heights. Okay, yeah, the basic setup, um, you know, is it starts with a, a guy, Reddick, the main character, who is... Um, I would say at this point, a, a failed artist. You know, he'd sort of never really, you know, got his career off the ground at the point that we meet him. He's, you know, kind of working as an art handler, which maybe people that don't live in the city might not be that familiar with, but it's essentially the, the art world is big enough here that there are, you know, plenty of people that just kind of make their livings hanging art, storing it, creating cr- creating it, yeah. um, you know, that, that kind of thing. So when he's, he's sort of in those peripheries and... Um, he encounters uh, a young woman uh, on his street. He lives, as we kind of alluded to, he lives in Brooklyn. He lives um, in Bed-Stuy, um, which is a traditionally black neighborhood for those that don't know. Um, but like a lot of Brooklyn, there are some changes and that have been happening in terms of gentrification, sort of a younger, whiter crowd you know, moving in, mm-hmm. particularly sort of art types like, um, like Reddick. And, um, so anyway, he encounters this woman, you know, sort of one night, she's very drunk, she sort of makes a clumsy pass, and then she kind of disappears in the back of this alleyway with someone whose face he doesn't see. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's kind of a funny story to tell the next day at work, uh, where he's going, hanging art in this wealthy client's house, and then uh, he, until he realizes that that woman that he saw is actually the fiancé of, of uh, the son of his, the, the people whose house he's in, you know, the, the, the wealthy family. And um, so he immediately, try, when he tries to offer to help, and they, they're kind of strangely not so interested in what he has to say and hearing what he saw, he, um, you know, he starts to kind of wonder what's going on there, and he gets drawn into uh, basically trying to find out, you know, what, what happened to her, right, you know. Right. Um, and then the mystery kind of unfolds from there because... The whole thing ties back into Restoration Heights, which is the, the the name of a development that's going up in the neighborhood, which is sort of controversial, big mega development, um, and there's been a lot of protests and something that he's kind of angry about, um, the fact that it's going up in his neighborhood, and it turns out that her disappearance relates to that in some way, and so it kind of, the mystery then sort of dives into the, that um the way that that development is affecting the neighborhood and affecting the people that are, uh, are from there. Yeah. And one of the things I like about it is it's a, it's a mystery that for a lot of the book, you're not actually really sure if it's a mystery or not. Is it, <laughs> you know, there's this tension between is, is this really a missing person or, or a murder or something, or is this just a coincidence? This yeah. Guy, you know. yeah. Um, would you read us a little excerpt from the book? Sure. This section is after Reddick has sort of been working the case a little bit, and at this point he basically is just kind of ends up in a local bar talking to his friend uh, Harold, who was one of the first people he talked to about the case, and he's just kind of trying to sort sort through his feelings about about where it's going and if if the case really is sort of as he seems to think it is, uh, maybe falling apart at this point. The sound of girls laughing interrupted them. Three white kids spilled through the open door, hounded by a gust of winter air. They claimed seats at the top of the bar, devil's perch, the two girls continuing to giggle while the boy went to the jukebox. They barely seemed old enough to drink. Harold grinned wryly. There goes the neighborhood. He was on his fourth beer, Natalie removing and replacing each bottle in silence, subtracting the appropriate bills from the dwindling pile of his cash. The process was machine-like, determined. Its effects were beginning to show. His suspicion had evaporated, 
The throbbing impact of his fatigue had been dampened. He had a lucidity, a calm, that Reddick associated with their morning conversations before the demands of the workday had taken their toll. A final peak before the inevitable slide into boozy sleep. So you really did come here just to have a drink, Harold said. That's the truth. The white kid's song hit on the jukebox, some track from West Side Story that opened with a lengthy skit that seemingly no one in the bar knew was in the machine. The kid and his friends were hysterical as the actor's lines, nonsensical without context, permeated the room, their faces red and crying. The attitudes of the other patrons ranged from bemusement to annoyance. Natalie reached behind the bar to the dial for the speakers and turned the volume down. The kids were laughing too hard to notice. Harold frowned, and Reddick stared at his glass, feeling suddenly out of place, silenced by what felt like a trespasser's shame. The truth, he said, I wasn't just thirsty. The truth is, I came here to think. Harold looked at the laughing white kids and back to him. This used to be a good place for it. It's, we start with this encounter, and this, this is him talking to Harold about, you know, further into his investigation. But we start with this encounter that seems slightly odd at the beginning, but not ominous in any, in any particular way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then very quickly we begin to view this encounter through the lenses of different uh, characters. We, he, Harold, for instance, says, you know, if this happened to a black guy, it'd be totally different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the, the wealthy people who he's installing the art for uh, sort of slip into accusation almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you use elements like race and class to affect different points of view and to shape what the viewer sees as reality or as unreality? Hmm. I mean, I think for me, forefronting race and class was just something that I wanted to do going in. Uh-huh. So I think in that sense, it was inevitable that it would shape the perspectives and the way that the story unfolds because just because it does, yeah. you know, and, uh, and I think it was important for me to, to try to establish early on with Reddick is that Reddick is from, you know, he's from the South and, and being from the South myself and living in New York, I could say that there's, there's an immediate sort of division there. You know, you're, you're, it's, it's not something that's always obvious when you, you know, um, uh, visually obvious when you, you know, when you see somebody, but there is a sense of being, of being a Southerner in, Southerner in New York. There's always a sense of being slightly out of place, you know, of, of, you know, not quite having the exact same experiences that other people in your peer group have, you know, or in, in Reddick's case, it's even magnified when he's in, when he's working for the stewards, because, in addition to being, you know, from the north, there's obviously the enormous class difference. Right, the Seward's are this massively wealthy family, and he's from, you know, raised by a single mother, raised from, you know, sort of a poor working class house and uh, home in Gastonia, and so I wanted to kind of establish that right away, that sort of sense that Reddick has of not feeling quite connected to the people around him. Yeah, one of the characters calls the world of the New York wealthy hermetic. In, incestuous even yeah. and and I can imagine that that might be true but to get back to what you said earlier about how New York is full of these pockets of communities that are sort of all on top of each other mm-hmm. it, even at that level of wealth in New York it, does it become harder or easier in a city like New York to to shut out the darker poorer corners of the city massively easier yeah, yeah it's massively easier I mean there's considerable 
time that's spent sort of structuring their lives in a way that makes that happen. And, and I kind of encountered that the way Reddick did, you know, uh, hanging art in, in houses of uh-huh. families whose names I, I won't say because you would rec- you know, if not you personally, certainly some li- listeners would, would recognize sure. them, yeah. you know, yeah. but, um, but, but yeah, families whose names are, are well known. And, uh, you know, I had never encountered that level of wealth prior to that. I had, I had, you know, worked at a country club or, you know, and I had met what I thought were wealthy people and, and, and they were certainly were, you know, but not that sort of 0.1% that New York has. Right, of, right. And, um, and I think at that point, you know, you really, you, you, not only do they have intermediaries that sort of between them and everyone else, mm-hmm. those intermediaries themselves have intermediaries. Right. There, there are several human beings removed from, from having to have, you know, a, a conversation with your average, you know, subway, subway rider. Um, and of course, they could choose to break that any time that they want, and I, and and no doubt some of them do, and and um, you know, or you know, but in terms of the way that the, their lives are structured, they certainly don't have to. Yeah, yeah. You you have had experience hanging art in in New York and talking about names that I don't know. Some of the names of the artists that you mentioned mm-hmm. in the book were names that I don't know. Some of them were names that I do know. But what I think you did such a great job of um, is writing about. Art. I love that novels can at least attempt to capture art forms that are not inherently linguistic. You know, I've written mm-hmm. about music before. I've read novels that are about ballet, and in this case, about visual art. How do you go about that challenge of putting a painting on the page for somebody who not only hasn't seen yeah. that painting, but maybe isn't even familiar with with the particular artist? Yeah, it's tough. But I, you know, I guess it's for me. It's just like kind of writing anything else where you just want to just. Uh, uh, hit on whatever the sort of most evocative or pertinent details are. Don't over-explain it, you know. So, and then I guess too, I, because I was writing a book and I could put whatever artist in that I wanted. I just put in artists that I like, right? You know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so then, so it's much easier, as everyone knows, to write about things that you like, you know. Um, and and because uh, then you have all the things that you like about them to to turn to. So you know, I think it was that. It was just finding finding artwork that I liked, um, and then just trying to hit on a few sort of key descriptive things that are aspects of the art that you know that drew me to it. Yeah. One of the things I found writing about New York is that over over time neighborhoods change. They mm-hmm. what was uh, I, I have a character who's a German immigrant who lives in what was called Kleine Deutschland, which we now call the Lower East Side, and, and that was the largest German city outside of Germany anywhere in the world. It was the second largest city, even including German cities. You know? oh, wow. And then um, for a variety of reasons, uh, most of the Germans left that neighborhood and it became Jewish immigrants that were in that neighborhood. And so the neighborhoods have changed over time. And somewhere along the way, uh, we attach this word gentrification to mm-hmm. certain types of neighborhood changes mm-hmm. with a sort of pejorative uh, mm-hmm. uh, tone behind it. Is there a best way for a city like New York to develop from generation to generation without um, sort of betraying the the heart of a neighborhood, keeping in mind that the heart of a neighborhood was probably a different heart a century ago. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I think that's interesting. And I think that's one of the things that I wanted to have the characters actively discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, part of the book with two is, 
influenced by when I first moved to New York, the Barclays Center was going up, and I don't know oh, if yeah. you're that familiar with that yeah. or not, but there was a fair amount of controversy around that. Sure. There was, you know, documentaries. There was, you know, and that was a little bit different because it was a, you know, there's sort of a public land grab happening there, right. but right. a lot of the same issues were in place, and so one of the things that stood out about Barclays that I wanted to make sure happened in Restoration Heights was that there were people with good intentions on both sides right. of, of a given issue. Um, and there were, and it wasn't even just that it was sort of people from outside looking in with good intentions. There were people that live there that, that, you know, want, want different things, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, so I think, you know, one of the characters who sort of, you know, nicknamed Sensei, you know, in, in, in the book, he kind of articulates sort of his view on that or, or a vision in which, you know, it, it could happen that way in a way that sort of, you know, was a positive force for a neighborhood. And he talks about that a neighborhood's going to change and that to try to hold a neighborhood in place is just a kind of conservatism that's not healthy, right. you know. Um, but that what needs to happen is that the changes need to be in some way guided by the people that are living there right. already. Right. And they need to be shaped by the people that are living there. And so I think giving people in those communities a voice, even when those voices maybe differ from each other, you know, I think that's that's got to be the way to do it. You know, is, is you have to figure out a way to kind of harness the power of those changes in a way that empowers the people uh, at the center of them. Yeah. Reddick occupies this very interesting space racially and culturally. He's from the South, but he grew up as a, a fairly poor kid playing basketball with his black neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, his black neighbors and his black schoolmates, and, and being really good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he plays down at the Y with mm-hmm. you know a wide variety of, of people. But he says this about, or, or the narrator says this about his relationship to African-American society. He says he didn't want to take, he wanted to belong. It never occurred to him that this distinction might not matter. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that thought a little bit? Yeah, I think um, I think particularly particularly dealing with, um, you know, actually let me back up a little bit. Uh, element, the, the way that black culture exists in America right now is often through sports and through music and that's the way or I should say the way that black culture exists for whites in America is often through you know sports or through music or you know uh, and I think that those aspects can be appealing to you know, two white people who want to move into those spaces and participate in that, you know, they're like, oh, I really love this music or I really love, you know, uh, this culture and I want, you know, I want to share in it. I just, I just want to be part of this. And then I think, you know, what can happen is that, you know, you end up sort of colonizing that space, Mm -hmm. you know, and you, you, you sort of push people out of it push, you know, maybe if if you as the sort of white person moving in, you have to be sensitive to the way in which, you know, your being there could be taking the place of, you know, someone else, um, you know, uh, who, who was already there prior, you know, you could be, could be pushing someone out. And so I think that's what I was trying to get at there is that, you know, Reddick, in some ways, I think this, it's a good thing. It's a very, it's a very good thing. In some ways, it, it, you know, it's a negative thing. Is that he has this sort of like 
you know, easy way of relating with the black community because he was, he grew up in a mixed neighborhood, um, in a way that some of the other kids who, you know, grew up in all, like went to all white high schools or something don't have. And they sort of, you know, can only approach it as the sort of like well-meaning white liberal and, and, and Reddick is very much, you know, not quite that, you know, he's sort of more just like, oh, I just want to belong and I just want to hang out and, and everything will just, just be, be roses. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that that makes him in some ways blind to, you know, some of the sort of uh, structural problems um, with the way that, you know, uh, white people and black people have interacted. Um, and so I think that's kind of what I wanted to get at there, too, is that he's he's sort of, um, you know, yeah, he's coming at it from an honest place, but he's not necessarily seeing the whole picture. Right, right. Reddick's trying to solve this mystery for which he feels partly responsible. The mm-hmm. the woman that he meets in the alley sort of disappears through the doorway, and he doesn't he doesn't go after her. He doesn't say to the whoever's attached to that arm, "Hey, wait a minute, are you a good guy or a bad guy?" You know. Yeah. So he, so he he feels a certain degree of responsibility, and it leads him to take some pretty significant personal risks. Um, and his friends think that that's irrational behavior. They're like, mm-hmm. you're crazy, you shouldn't be doing this, you're, you're going to get in trouble, you're going to go to jail. Is it? Do you think it's fair to characterize either his position uh, or his friend's position as, as typical of New York millennials, either you know, I really <laughs> must, I really must be responsible for this thing yeah. that maybe I'm not really responsible for, or hey, this is none of my business, stay out of it. Yeah. As typical of, did you, did you ask? Yeah, as, I mean, is this? You know, I, that I don't. I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what would necessarily constitute a sort of a typical response to those kinds of situations. But I, or if there was a generational, you know, gap, or maybe you know, sort of you know, younger people would maybe more apt to respond in a certain way. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that to be honest, I'm just not. Uh, I just wouldn't be. You know, feel comfortable opining one way or the other, essentially. <laughs> you know, but uh, but but. You know, I do think that they're both sort of, uh, you know, honest reactions. And I think that, honestly speaking, one thing that strikes me about New Yorkers in general, and, you know, this is something that I think maybe New Yorkers often don't get enough credit for, um, particularly not, you know, in, in the South where... You know, again, where I'm from, where there's so much stress placed on courtesy and manners, and that there's sort of a reputation of New Yorkers as being the sort of, you know, jaded. They don't they don't care about each other, um, sort of people. But the truth of the matter is that every day you just you just see New Yorkers kind of helping each other in these like little maybe they're little minor ways, yeah, but yeah. you know, but but you know, you see someone. Uh, standing in front of stairs with a baby carriage, and you barely even have to ask. You just kind of walk over and sort of grab the other end right, and help and right. help them up. Or, you know, if you see somebody just struggling with something, you, know, you just kind of people just sort of do that. You know, just sort of as a matter of course here. And I think that, you know, granted, all the the, the links that Reddit goes to are much farther than carrying a baby carriage up the stairs. But I think it comes from the same impulse in the sense that he's. He just happened to be there when this happened, and right. so it's like, well, you know, he didn't, you know, he didn't set out to try to like, you know, save this woman, but there's no one else there, and and if there's no one else there, you know, then you know you, uh, and and it was only you, and you're the one that lets you know this woman maybe be killed, you know, maybe that's on you, you know, yeah. that's on you because we're all we're all here together, and so you can't just. 
you know, you don't have the luxury of just kind of like walking by and not looking while bad things happen. Yeah. I think, again, you hit on something that's, that's the nature of a city like New York where you have so much population in such a small area is that you can't, not see opportunities to do something nice for somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know where I live. I get in my car, I go to the grocery, I put my groceries in the car, I drive home. You know, I, I'm not going to run into somebody who's trying to carry a baby carriage up the subway. <laughs> yeah. But but here, you know, you can't walk a block down the street without seeing yeah. an opportunity to, you know, open a door for somebody. Whatever it might be, as you said, the little things. So I yeah. I do find that it is it is a, a friendly city in mm-hmm. in so many different ways. Um, you write about a store in this gentrified neighborhood. And there's this, there's this great uh, description of the products that I want to read because it sort of gets at a, a little deeper at this issue we were just talking about. The products advertised an ethos, signaled their virtue so clearly you were desperate to pay the higher price. And to me, there seems to be a distinction here between Reddick's personal ethos, which his friends think is crazy, his, his mm-hmm. wanting to, to solve this mystery because of his responsibility, and this broader... Um, ethic of society, which his friends probably subscribe to, which is you know buy fair trade coffee and and mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think that people um, are inclined to lose the connection between those those two types of ethics, the sort of the personal and the societal? I think that sometimes people lose the they lose the distinction, and so and I think that that's the, there's there's a uh, um, there's an argument that happens at one point in the book as well, and um, which is sort of an uncomfortable argument to, to write, but I think you know, are, you know, kind of touches on this, where at one point, Reddick says to the woman he's arguing with that he says, "Oh, you think having these opinions makes you noble?" And I think mm. that touches on that too, where yeah. I think there can be a tendency to think that if you are buying sustainable products, if you're, you know, sort of you know, doing the right thing on for, you know, the, the us as a global society in terms of, you know, your eating habits and the clothes that you wear and the, you know, the, you know, the magazines that you read or the, the, you read the right blogs, you know, or, 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 you know, you, you make the appropriate Twitter posts, you know, that, that, that those things are virtuous sort of in and of themselves and that, doing those things makes you a virtuous person. And I think, you know, to me, one of the things that your question, your question highlights is the fact that virtue runs deeper than that. It certainly includes those things. And we certainly have to be conscious, you know, of, you know, climate change. We have to be conscious of the big, the big picture things that are happening in the world. Right. But, you know, virtue does start at like a person to person interaction and it starts with the way two people you know speak to one another it starts with the way two people you know just treat each other as human beings and I think that you know it has to be sort of built from the ground up yeah yeah, you do. I mean, I think of this as again as someone who lives in a driving city. It's like somebody cuts you off in traffic in a Prius, and you're like, "How could that be possible?" Yeah. <laughs> that the virtuous person who drives the hybrid car would, you know, would would cut exactly, front, you know. exactly. Um, you you call race the nation's sundering division, but you say this wonderful thing, or one of your characters does on the topic of a really sort of race and class and and labeling in general, uh, and that is. He says, every one of those data points is a person. 
Uh, and like I've repeated that line to like several people since I read, <laughs> yeah. read your book because we're constantly seeing things on the news about mm -hmm. about this community thinks this way and this community trends that way mm -hmm. and to understand that a community is made up of of these individual people, people who are who are all different. Um, how did you strive in writing about these these sort of grand topics of, of race and class to to overcome trends and data and to really sort of keep the emphasis on on actual individual human beings? That that's where I started from, you mm -hmm. know, and and I, it's funny because I, I you know, dealing with race and class, obviously there's sort of the specter of Trump that kind of hangs over all these you know conversations. I actually started writing this before you know it was before the election, I and mean, yeah, you know, books yeah. take, they 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 take a while before they they make it out there, and so this was actually sort of written in, in the pre-Trump era, but but in the sort of post-Black Lives Matter, in the point where sort of race was really beginning to be an energetic conversation. In the, in the country and on social yeah. media and just between people and people were having conversations and finding things out that maybe they didn't know before, you know, and, um, and a lot of these things were maybe uncomfortable. But I think at the time, just kind of being, you know, being online and sort of seeing the way, and maybe it's just from spending too much time online, right? <laughs> but, you know, and, and some of those is the, the limits of the way people talk about things on, say, Twitter, you know, is that there's a limitation in the number of characters you have and people are trying to make the sort of most pointed point that they, that they can, can muster. So they, there's not a lot of room for nuance. But I just thought that going in, there were just, like, incredible generalizations being made, like, at the early points of these conversations, the, the public conversation about race. And... You know uh, uh, the way you know certain notions of like privilege were kicked around, and 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 it just seemed to me that it seemed to me that there that gosh I think this even I don't remember who this was it might have been Trump but but there was this assumption that like if you were black in America you were from an urban uh, uh, ghetto essentially, right, and if right. you were white in America, you were from like the lily white suburbs, right, and that right. no other permutation of those two people existed. And it was just like, God, that is not what I see at all. That's not what I saw growing up. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, on the west side of Jacksonville, Florida. You know, uh, it's a very mixed race neighborhood. It's a very poor section of town. You know, if you're making 30 grand a year, you're the baller, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. like, so it, you know, it was like, wow, you know, this, this is not at all what my lived experience is. And it can't just be me. There's gotta be millions yeah. of people that are being, uh, you know, sort of completely left out of the way that conversation is being framed. And I think that as these conversations go over time, actually, I, I think there is a lot more nuance, even to the way that these things are talked about online, you know? Um, so I think nuance has been more, has been injected in that conversation more, but that was where I started from initially was like, well, let's just create, you know, let's just show, not even create, but let's just bring in all these characters, these people that I know exist. You just don't map in some perfect way onto this sort of like sociologist description of, you know, sort of what's wrong with America. You know, let's bring these individual viewpoints, which just, don't, you know, have an incredibly important variety to them. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the places where a novel can succeed, where maybe the news or a magazine really can't, because mm -hmm. you have the opportunity to not only create very specific characters, but then to, to let us spend some time with them mm -hmm. and Absolutely. see how they think and feel and act and interact. I think uh, it's like the the one of the most important things a novel could do is to to 
dive deeply into individual people in a way that really nothing else does. Yeah, yeah. Um, to get personal at the end here, as we're as we're starting to wind down, you write about a character named Sarah. This is a, not not one of the major characters, and and. She mentions her younger brother. We don't ever see this guy, but I'm fascinated by him because he becomes transformed. He's kind of this grumpy kid, and he becomes transformed into a much happier person when he finds his passion. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I know so many people for whom that is the case who have found such a variety of passions. And my question is, what is your passion, and and how did you find it, and, and did it transform you in a similar way? I mean... Being given the opportunity to write, you know, to write a book, to write a novel, you know, uh, uh, it's it's made me a happier person. Yeah. And and what I say by being given the opportunity is that, you know, I I was spending a lot of time, you know, like a lot of writers, writing on top of a day job and finding that very difficult to do. But but just doing it and then just. Various things happen, and I ended up being able to work essentially three days a week at my day job. Yeah, yeah. And when that happened, it, it was like, oh, all of a sudden you get the rest of the time that I get to like live as a writer. I get to like wake up in the morning. I get to take my cup of coffee into my <laughs> studio, and I get to just work before yeah. I do anything else. Yeah. You know, before yeah. I check my email, before I do anything. You know, and it was like, oh, and once. You know, not that I was miserable before that, you know, but but I think once that started happening, even before I knew that Restoration Heights was going to go somewhere, I think just once I had that process where I had a, f- a few days a week at least where I got to just live the life that I wanted to live writing, you know, that I just got to wake up and write, you know, everything else just got a lot better. Yeah, I think that's important for our, our listeners too because I know we have a lot of people who, who like to write and it and the joy can come from the process as much as from whether you end mm-hmm. up having a book published or an yeah. article published. It's all process it, to me. It, yeah. If you yeah. if you don't have the joy in the process, then you should definitely find something else to do. Absolutely, <laughs> because, absolutely. Um, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same ten questions. You should be able to answer each in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us something to think about in terms of writing and in terms of your approach to the uh, to the topic. So if you're ready for the speed round, we will begin. All right. What word do you love to work into your writing? Bloom. Bloom or blossom. Okay. We're not talking about flowers. Right. Know, as a, yeah. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I don't I don't really have any I don't really have any words that I I I hate, honestly, that I that I can think of. That's a fair answer. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to write? Oh, in my in my I still call it my studio because it was an art studio at first, mm-hmm. um, but it's just it's the spare bedroom of my apartment. But it's my it's my writing studio now. Yeah, that's that's it. Where could you never write? Like uh, if if a coffee shop has very loud music, anywhere yeah. with anywhere that's loud. Yeah. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Oh, fragments, sentence <laughs> fragments. I think fragments are amazing, but they need to be used sort of sparingly, I guess, judiciously, but. They do so much for like setting the sort of rhythm and mood of a piece if yeah. you use them well. What was the first book you remember reading? Oh God, that I can actually, I never remember a time where I wasn't reading at oh, all. I grew up in a reading household. My, my mom is a, just, she reads just books a week. Um, God, it was probably like an Encyclopedia Brown book or yeah. something like that, you know? What are you reading now? Oh, um, Claire DeWitt and the City of the Dead. Okay. 
It's by Sarah Grant. I don't yeah. know if you know it, but it's... What book would you like to have written? Uh, Libra by Don DeLillo. It's hands mm. down my favorite book. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? <laughs> I, would like, I would like to write a sort of sprawling historical fiction about Vikings. And I can, oh, wow. I can, that sound you can hear is every agent in New York running the opposite direction. <laughs> but but I think Vikings are cool, and I think all the research would be amazing, and they, they traveled all over the ancient world. There'd be so many opportunities to show you know, different aspects of culture. It'd be yeah. great. No, it'll never happen, but it would be great. <laughs> and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? You know, that something was beautiful. I think that's it. If, they, if a particular passage or a particular book or moment or something struck them as beautiful. I think that's what I most want to hear. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. During the winter months, I'll be posting new episodes on the 15th and last day of each month. In February, I'll be talking to some of the authors at Bookmark's 7th Annual Movable Feast. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.